Hi there, Duke fans. Episode 596 of the DBR podcast, the Duke Basketball Roundup. I'm Jason Evans here with you today as we are going to talk about the game against Florida State, the McCain game. I'm just going to go ahead and call it that. I think that's that's officially the name of this contest. Joining me as always, my buddy Donald Wine. Donald, how are you doing this fine Sunday morning? Jason, wait. Hang on. Sorry. You got to start over. Um, you didn't announce the name of this podcast, right? Is the Jeremy Kane basketball roundup today. You're, you're, man, thank you. For, let's start the whole thing over. You're right. I, I, <laughs> I can't believe I messed that up. Yeah. Wow. I mean, what a day did uh, Mr. McCain have as uh, the Blue Devils take down Florida State 76 to 67. We're going to dive right in because there's a lot of stuff to cover on today's podcast. By the way, after we're done talking about the game, going to take a quick break. And after that break, we're going to talk about the NCAA releasing their first sort of sample seating, so to speak, of the NCAA tournament. A lot of stuff to talk about there. We're going to have a special guest on who knows all about that kind of uh, bracketology kind of um, seating sort of stuff. But Donald, let's begin, as we always do in this contest, with the headlines. I know you had a look. The inbox was exploding. DBRpodcast at gmail.com. Everybody was sending us their headlines, and virtually every one of them had to do with Mr. Jared McCain. Yeah, and let me tell you, I think we got about 40 headlines. This is like one of the most uh, headlines we have. And as you mentioned, a lot of them, you know, really, really sunk in on the fact that Jeremy McCain had a historic game. Let's start with Michael Slaughter. He just wrote, nailed it. McCain sinks eight threes in dominant performance versus FSU. Of, of course, alluding to the nails, we'll have some of those more in a minute. He also, Michael Slaughter also wrote, he's got that dog in him. McCain silences haters and creates many uh many more in record setting performance versus FSU. Thought that was good. Tom Wildermuth, I thought this was great because just simply Jared, but the three the E's were threes. Uh eight of them I, I noticed to be that. exact. And he had the exact um, right number of E's, by the way. Exact right number of E's. Say, yeah. Uh David Gorett uh said McCain polishes Knowles at Tallahassee Salon. I thought that was very, very clever. Uh and then finally we have uh, or a couple more. Um Josh Levinson. He has Knowles McCain't stop him. Then McCain only hoped to contain him. I thought that was great. And then Chris Bynum, everyone was referencing the nails, referencing how hot he was. Chris Bynum took it back old school, ladies and gentlemen. He wrote, he's on fire. McCain becomes NBA GM cheat code and win over Seminoles. I love that one. By the way, there are a couple others that you missed. I'm surprised. I mean, like there were so many. I'm not surprised. There was them. there was 90 million of them. But so. I want Mark, <laughs> pick six. <laughs> Mark Esselstein had McCain inflicts McPain. I, I, mm -hmm. I like that. Uh, Rogan Fox had McRain. Uh, I thought that yeah. was a pretty good one. People definitely having fun there. And uh, David uh, Koiza with Proctor nowhere near. McCain says, hold my beer. I'm sorry. That, that That's some good <laughs> stuff. And the last one, John Grantland. The devil went down to Florida looking for a knoll to steal. A little Charlie Daniels band there. Yep. I, I appreciated all of those. Donald, it is clear. We must begin our conversation with Mr. Jared McCain, who set a record, most three-pointers ever hit by a freshman, tied Zion Williamson for the most points ever scored by a freshman with 35 of them. Man, get, give me give me your hot take. How great was Jared McCain? Jason, I, I, I'm, I can't believe you didn't start with the, the real winner of this game is that Jared McCain had four rebounds, three steals, and one assist. Um, and yes, he had 35 points and eight threes. Um, this, this was a man who was all <laughs> over the place, but Jason, I, I mentioned the, the rebounds and steals because there was a couple of moments where those steals led to three pointers on the other end for him. The rebounds led to three pointers or, or shots on the other end for him. And 
you know, he cooled off a little bit in the second half, which is what happens when you put 25 up in the first half. But he was unstoppable. I mean, it was step back threes. He he ran from the logo with it, like, you know, corner threes, wing threes. Again, hand in the face, open threes. He, you know, the fact is, after the game, they were talking with uh, a couple of people and they talked with Chris Carwell. They said, Chris Carwell said, that Jared McCain in the you know years that he's been at Duke is the hardest working Duke athlete he's ever seen. And we've talked about on this show about how he, you know, will after a win, we'll go in the gym and rattle off 500 threes because he wasn't satisfied with his three point fours. That is, this is what, this is what happens, ladies and gentlemen, uh, young, young ones out there who are listening to this podcast. This is what happens when you do the work. It pays off. And for him to have eight threes to set that record to, to again, tie Zion Williamson and always be linked with, Guys like Zion Williamson and RJ Barrett and JJ Reddick. Jason, these we were, we were looking at the at the list of people. Marvin Bagley. We're like, yo, first of all, I've seen all these guys play live. Yeah. Second of all, I've seen all like all of these have happened in the last like seven years. So, like, except for JJ Reddick, who stands the test of time. And there was a point where we thought he was going to go for 40 because that's how on he was, and that's how well his shot was going. So I'm really proud of the fact that you know the fruits of his labor are starting to pay off. And he's become our most lethal uh, offensive player, S- straight up. I mean, there's there's times where Jeremy Roach, right, is the is the is the clutch guy. Yeah. But from start to finish, if there's a guy who's proven all year long that he's the most lethal three point shooter and the most lethal you know shooter on our team, it's been Jeremy McCain, and it's because of the work that he's shown in practice. Yeah, look, I I love the. I, I'm going to go ahead and say it now. We're not going to go ahead and do play of the game later on because my play of the game. The, the two possessions he had back-to-back at the six-minute mark where he hit the one from the logo and then 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 on the very next possession did that step back where he touched mm-hmm. nothing but net. I mean, come on. That sequence back-to-back was just... The basket was the size of the ocean for him. You could t- In that first half, great shooters, when they recognize, wait, I've got something going on, they hunt their shot. And man, Jared, Jared recognized, don't take me out, give me the ball. <laughs> I, I got something happening here and I want to, I want to just keep it going. I mean, if the, if the first, if there'd been no halftime, he would have kept on doing that in the second half. I, I I'm convinced that, you know, that's sort of what cooled him off a little bit. Since, since we're doing play of the week now, I'm just going to get out of the way. My play of the week is not the same one or, or play, play, play of the, of the game, game, player I'm of sorry. the week, but yeah, don't worry, play of the week. And player of the week we, probably we'll also same. be talking about Jared McCain, Jared McCain, <laughs> but the play of the game is not the same as yours because Hey, spoiler alert, Jason. We had like several chances for for us to pick the right play. This is also the right play. At the end of the first half, he grabs the ball. He gets was a steal. He rebounds to him. He drives instead of going all the way to the basket where he has a clear path. He stops, pump fakes, does like a little shimmy, backs up, nails a three as that was the first absurd. half ended to make it twenty five points. Right again to have this historic half to make it set what eight three seven threes and a half, eight threes. Yeah. And the point of that was, is that Jason was still a close game at that point. So yeah. that was a, that was something where, again, any momentum that you had from Florida State entering halftime, gone in the instant of, instead of him shooting that, shooting that ball and then telling the crowd to hush uh, as he put his fingers to his lips to, to silence them. Like the ability, the, the fact is this 35 points. It's not like he took over the game and was playing, you know, a lot of mercy, you know, hog ball or anything like that. It came within the flow of the offense. 
everyone kept saying they looked to him to shoot. And as he kept making them, they just kept looking at him to shoot it even more. But Jason, it also helped us win the game. It wasn't just 35 points for the sake of 35 points. I think that's the most spectacular thing about it is that we needed those 35 points from him and he gave them to us. Yeah, in a very big way. I, I'm I'm glad you talked about the moment where he he told the the crowd to be to be quiet, to hush, uh, because Jared McCain is a guy who look you see his joy of playing on the floor all the time. We talk about how much of a hard worker he is. He he's a super you know just from talking to his parents as much as we have, he is a super sweet guy, but he's also got a little bit of that dog in him. There's no question about mm-hmm. that. And like I loved it when the uh, uh, when the commentators were saying that his favorite thing to say on the floor is that y'all letting a guy with painted fingernails cook you out here. <laughs> yep. Uh, and apparently, that's his favorite thing to say every game. So yes, I mean, it's not right. like the first. It's not the first time we've talked about Jeremy Kane's fingernails and and his nail polish. Which hey, look, if he's going to do thirty five points, I'll help. I'll help. I'll help. I'll pick a design for him. Pick the color. Whatever he needs to do. But nails are nails are flossing, and it looks great. When he's shooting and the ball's going through the net. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Let's uh let's put Jared McCain aside for a moment. Obviously, clearly a, a remarkable offensive shooting performance from him. And and like you said, he filled up the box score in a number of other ways. Uh, Donald, let's be, you know, we're gonna do the bad in a little bit. I don't have a ton of other stuff in the good other than Jared McCain. I, I want to talk about Jeremy Roach for a second. He was to me the only other guy on the Duke team who who really brought it at the offensive end of the floor. Um, I thought Caleb Foster had a couple really nice finishes in the lane. But for the for the most part, Duke's offense in this game was Jared McCain or Jeremy Roach, and and none of the other guys were were really there. But but because we're in the good, I want to I want to talk about Jeremy Roach, who I thought you know once again in one of these games where whenever you know when the shot clock's running down, whenever Duke needs a bucket. Jeremy Roach is the guy they go to again and again and again, and for for very good reason. You know, he puts up 17 points, and a lot of those points came in the final, like, four or five minutes. You know, Florida Mm -hmm. State was not going to let Jared McCain do nothing but shoot three-pointers the whole game. So in the second half, Duke had to find someone else, and it was really Jeremy Roach who, you know, he's just so creative at getting his own shot for himself. Uh, and, And by the way, he... Again, led the team in assists with four assists. This was a game where Jeremy Roach had to handle the ball more than usual because Tyrese Proctor was was not there. And when we get to the bad, uh, I, I'll I'll tell you now. I'm gonna I'm gonna mention the fact that Tyrese Proctor wasn't there and and the fact that he got hurt on a play that the refs didn't even call a foul. You know that, but we'll wait on that in a little bit. But I thought uh, Jeremy Roach had you know it wasn't like the most efficient game for him. Uh, just three of eight on two pointers, but but I thought it was an, an outstanding contest from Jeremy Roach because Duke needed him to be as assertive as he was, especially down the stretch, the final five minutes. As you mentioned, he established the pass in the first half because Jeremy McCain was lights out, and then in the second half he established he's he established the uh, the run, so to speak, if we're in football terms. He he established the the ability to create, and when they were keying in on on McCain and for good reason. Jeremy Roach is like, hey, sorry, still shouldn't leave me open just because he's going off for 30. Like, I'm still I'm still in this ballgame. I'm still able to to destroy you on the offensive end. And that's when he did. And I think that's the that's the key here, right? He in the first half, he mentioned that McCain was so hot that they just were like, we have to defer. Like, this is not a situation where uh it was forced. It was, hey, this this kid is playing out of his mind right now. Let that man cook, as as the streets say. 
But then in the second half, when he started to cool off a little bit, hey, I, I got you. And this is where, again, clutch Jeremy Roach shows up. And he it takes a game that's a four-point game and turns into an eight-point game very quickly because of his ability to create off the dribble, his ability to recognize when he's open to shoot a three and nail him. He hit two of them. And that is... The, that's the senior Jeremy Roach that we all expected, right? We didn't expect him to play. Honestly, we didn't expect him to play as well as he has been playing. But this is Jeremy Roach that we know and love, the playoff Roach that we've seen. And I I, I appreciate that we're having it in mid-February and it's been around all year. Again, probably one of the most consistent players that we've had on this team all season long. Yesterday was no exception. Yeah, so my other thing I have in the good is that I thought that Duke – worked hard in this game and i think that really matters there were a number of 50 50 balls balls on the floor and the such where i really saw these guys going going after it hard and the place it really showed up to me was in the rebounding because this is a game where duke wins the rebounding battle 36 to 27 that's a, that's a fairly significant defeat of florida state in rebounding we mentioned in the preview florida state is the biggest team the tallest team in all of division one basketball uh, they just got a ton of different guys out there who are big and can get to the boards and get rebounds on you. Donald Duke had 15 offensive rebounds. We that, That's 45%, better than 45% of the shots we missed. We got an offensive rebound. By the way, sort of a, a weird quirk of it was six of those 15, like the leading offensive rebounder was the team, you know, and, and that those were balls where, you know, a bunch of people were fighting for it and it ended up going out of bounds. And it goes to Duke. So there's no person who grabs the rebound, but Duke retains possession. Someone had to get a rebound if there was a missed shot. And so the Duke team got the rebound. But those are, again, situations where Duke was fighting and battling with a super tall uh, Florida State team. And and, and and in the end, the ball was ours. I, I, it's just, to me, it's a, a big deal to be able to beat a team like Florida State that badly on the boards. And it is worth noting that Duke has now out-rebounded their opponents in 15 of their games this year. In those games, Duke is 15-0. and 0. Yep. It, I, I'm not saying that this is the ultimate reason why Duke wins and loses or anything like that, but probably the single stat that correlates best to whether or not Duke gets a W or an L is whether or not Duke wins the rebounding battle. And, I, you know, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have thought that before I looked at it, before it was provided to me as a stat. It, it was a little bit surprising to see that, but this was one of those games where Duke needed every one of those possessions and the offensive rebounding especially was really impressive. And Jason, it, it, it's because it translates over to the energy and hustle and intensity that you mentioned that we had and that Shire specifically mentioned in his post-game press conference. He specifically mentioned Jalen Blakes and Sean Stewart for their hustle, winning those loose balls, those 50-50 balls. Jalen Blake's even providing a spark on offensive points. Like he had that one uh, play where he he got the ball and drove the length of the court and laid it in for the and one, you know, the, and ended up with five points. Like we're not asking him to provide a spark on offense. And when he does, it's great. Right. Even if, again, even if it's just one bucket, but for both of them and for Sean Stewart, it's about that energy when they come into game to know that, Hey, it's, you know, Ryan young, like when you come in, it's a hockey shift. Play your three minutes that you're going to get. Play them to the max of your ability, the max of your intensity, and help this team sustain that long after you got off the court. And I think that's what happened. He, they, he specifically mentioned winning loose balls and getting rebounds 
are were the focus and the fact that hey we didn't have a great shooting day you know J- Jeremy McCain notwithstanding we didn't have a great shooting day we weren't perfect we, we you know we turned the ball over and he's like you have to approach every game knowing you're not going to be perfect but it's those intangibles it's that hustle it's that grit you know going after a loose ball it, it, not necessarily winning them but even winning every single one of them but winning most of them means that you're winning the rebounds you're you're getting off and, and the one thing about it is if you're winning these intangibles, you have the basketball. Florida State cannot hurt you without the basketball. The other team cannot hurt you if they don't have the hand ball in their hands. It's very simple. Unless you're putting the ball in their net for them, they can't score. So winning those loose balls means the end of possessions for Florida State. That's the real key here is that Florida State, a, a team that we said would try to turn this into a track meet, may not be the most efficient offensive team, but they're going to try and turn into a track meet and get more possessions, more bites of the apple. We limited that with the rebounding and by getting off through these with balls. Yeah, I, I'm glad a moment ago that you mentioned both Jalen Blakes and Sean Stewart because, look, this is a game where Duke's missing Tyrese Proctor, and that that means that the other guys on the bench have to elevate their play a little bit. And I thought both those guys really did a, a very nice job. Limited minutes for Sean Stewart. I, I, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I'm a, I, I get that Mark Mitchell and Kyle Filipowski, you know, were playing great the other day against Wake. And I actually thought Mitchell had a had a fairly good game in, in, in this contest as well. Uh, so I understand that it's hard for John Shire to find time for Sean Stewart uh, after that BC game where, where we talked extensively about the fact that Sean Stewart got sort of extended minutes, got a second hockey shift, as you put it, Donald. Uh, I, I just, God, I wish, I wish John could find a way to continue to do that with him. Because Sean Stewart in four minutes had four rebounds in this game, including two offensive rebounds. So he literally he literally had as many rebounds in four minutes as Mark Mitchell had in 34 minutes of play. <laughs> and, and it's about consistency on Sean Stewart's part, right? We haven't yeah. seen that from him. And it's, I'm not saying that as a negative, right? It, it, it happens. He's a freshman. He's going to have inconsistent moments. But it's about bottling that energy and saying, hey, when you come out, if you give me nothing, give me that, right? That's your focus when you come to the game. Everyone has a role on this team. Everyone has a role in every team to try and buy into those roles is the most important thing a coach can do. And it is is to help them understand, hey, when you're on the court, I need you to do this above everything else. I need you to shoot. I need you to rebound. I need you to distribute the ball. I need you to play defense. Those things all forming together and everybody buying into that and understanding where everyone on the court is. Or it, Obviously, in the end, you still have to score. You still have to play defense and do all these things. But understanding those roles is half the battle. You have to be able to understand that. I think Sean Stewart understands that. I think Jalen Blix understands that. The application of that is what needs to continue to be consistent. And I think yesterday was a good day for them in those regards, being able to play defense, providing the hustle, the, the energy. We're going to need that the rest of the season. We, we, we're getting ever closer to March, Jason. We're, what, 12 days from March? We're, we're getting close to the end here. The energy only can only can ratchet up from here. The intensity is going up from here. We just need to continue to match that. Yeah. Okay. So I want to move us over to the bad just very, very quickly. And I, this, this is a game. You got to have some concerns about some of the things that happened in this game. Let's start with the turnovers. Man. I, I mean, Duke had a number of really, really ugly possessions in this game. We talked, Donald, in the pregame about the fact that Florida State was going to have to turn Duke over to have a chance to stay in this game. 
that that's a huge part of what they do defensively. Uh, and usually it is something that Duke does really well on offense. Duke had 17, 17 turnovers in this game. We had a turnover. That's a lot than... for anything. That's is that yeah. what it's got to be one of the most that we've had all year. Yeah, we we had we had turnovers on more than twenty five percent of our possessions. That's just egregious. Jared McCain had five of them. Jeremy Roach had four. Kyle Filipowski had six turnovers, and so many of them, in my opinion, were just just gross tear. Like there's a ball in the first half where Jared McCain was cutting through the middle of the lane and Kyle threw it to him, even though he was like double teamed. There were like, there were like four guys in there just not valuing the ball. It was an incredibly risky play. Uh, Jeremy Roach caught a ball at one point while standing on, on the out of bounds line. Uh, Jared had a couple forays into the lane that ended with the ball ping ponging around for anyone to grab. Like we, we didn't take, we didn't value the ball. We didn't take care of it. And this is what kept Florida State in a contest where really they probably shouldn't have been in the contest at all. I mean, let's be clear. Jared McCain had a career game. Dude was an absolute flamethrower out there. And this was still very much a contest till the very end. And one of the major reasons is because Duke didn't value the ball and just repeatedly turned it over to Florida State. And by the way, hand in hand with that was the block shots. That Florida State blocked nine shots in this game. Duke had very poor awareness of where the Florida State defenders were on the floor, and it allowed them to get deflections and steals and block shots at just crazy kind of rates. I, to some extent, Duke's lucky we won a game that we played as sloppily as we played this one. Yeah, like I said, it took 35 points from Jeremy Cain. It took 17 points from Jeremy Roach. It took hustle and energy and effort from Jalen Blakes and Sean Stewart for this game to win. And, and like we said, Jeremy Cain had a historic game. But he didn't have a perfect game. And that's and that's fine, right? Like the one thing that concerns is for a team that is averaging less than 10 turnovers a game this season, they they had 17 yesterday. And again, 17 points against a better team or 17 turnovers against a better team is going to yield more points off of turnovers. There's going to yield more second chance points on the rebounds, that sort of thing. And you can't let good teams get more bites of the apple Florida state. Yeah. I guess you, that's the game plan. That's what they want to do. And you want to try and let them do that. That's fine. But if you're going to get into the NCAA tournament and play a two seed or play a three seed and do that or a one seed, you're not going to let that's not going to happen in the NCAA tournament. It's not going to happen in the ACC tournament. So those are things that need to be cleaned up uh, as, as we move forward, because the one thing you can't do is not take care of the basketball. That's, that's just paramount. You can't, you can't score again. You can't score if you don't have the ball. And if you give it to the other team, you're just giving them chances to score. I think that's very key. I think Jason, the other thing about that is, you know, we just, we talked about two players who scored the bulk of the points, right? When we talk about the rest of the starting five, Caleb Foster, Mark Mitchell, and Cal Filipowski, they combined for just 19 points. Remember Jeremy yeah. Roach had 17 and we only had one block. So again, there there's things where, yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't a great day offensively for us save for a couple of guys and I think when you think about how bad we needed Tyrese Proctor to at least alleviate some of the things around us right the one thing I always stress when someone is hurt and someone's not playing in the game the one thing you need to figure out how to do and this team has not mastered that yet 
is to be able to bring the qualities of the player that you're missing onto the floor without sacrificing why you're on the floor. Jeremy Kane was able to get his shots off. That's what he's on one of the reasons on the floor for, right? But someone was not able to bring that dynamic creativity in the in the paint to not bring the assist. We only had what 10 assists on 26 made baskets. Yeah, I was gonna mention and, that. Yeah. And Jeremy Roach had four of them, right? So there was not a lot of moving the ball around because that was something that Tyrese Proctor did. At least he may not have been as good this year as he has been, but he has been that guy that on the floor he's supposed to do that. We're supposed to provide defense. We weren't there was times we had some very bad defensive lapses and we're supposed to take care of the basketball. All things that Tyrese Proctor is known to do, all things that were missing yesterday because Tyrese Proctor wasn't in the lineup. I agree with every word you said. And I want to add one more thing. I don't know why, and maybe it's just my pro-Duke bias, but man, it feels like every game Duke gets hosed by the refs. And I hate, God, I hate complaining about the officials because there's not a grand conspiracy pro or con any team. The refs are out there doing their best they can they are they are not inclined to favor one team over another. They make calls so quickly that they don't even have time to process, oh, was that a guy in blue or was that a guy in white? But, man, the inconsistency, the physicality that the refs are allowing is just, and the just obvious stuff that they're missing. Like, Ryan Young goes up with a layup. The ball clearly hits the backboard, and then Florida State wipes it away, and they don't call a goaltend. It's just like a, a basic rule. That uh, that's the and, most egregious one, right? That we saw that a few times yesterday. The game, you know, again where Tyrese Proctor got hurt, and that was a you know, as you mentioned uh, before the show, that was not on a foul call. A foul wasn't called in that play, and he's out for an entire game due to concussion as a result. But on that game, I believe there was another like block or two that were goaltends that they took. They said, "Oh no, we're not going to review it." It was a clean block, and it clearly went off the backboard. That is something that across the board. And in the NBA, referees have been missing a lot this year. And I don't understand why, because you have the art of the replay to go back and go, did that touch Did that touch the backboard first? It did, clearly. Um, and that one, it was in real time where they're like, oh, that's weird. They didn't call that a goaltend. Like, they were literally, up, as, the, as the ball was going up the court, they're like, that's probably a goaltend. Let's look at it the next replay. And they're like, yep, still a goaltend. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm curious as to why that has been something that's been missed so often this year. And also why they're not using the art of the review to make that play right. I think there's some plays that are reviewable and some that aren't. I'm not sure if a goaltend like that is reviewable. I I don't know. Look, I'm not an expert to know all the all the different rules about that kind of stuff. But it wasn't just that kind of play. I mean, at the at the 10 minute mark of the second half, uh, what's his name? Green, uh, Darren Green of Florida State just rammed into Jared McCain, like mm -hmm. sent him sprawling. And uh, right into Jared's chest and the refs, you know, didn't do anything. Uh, there was a time a little, a, a couple minutes after that, Jared McCain was in the lane surrounded by guys. It was the the play where, where he ended up drawing a technical on green, yep. but he was surrounded by guys. And on the replay, you saw like two or three Florida state guys, just like grabbing Jared McCain's arms, not like nowhere near the ball. I, I don't know why the, the announcers, they were, they were reviewing the technical. So they didn't really, they weren't paying attention to that, but I was like, he's clearly fouled. I mean, like, He's it's not even close. He's clearly being fouled there. I saw Cal Filipowski and and Mark Mitchell and Ryan Young just repeatedly get whacked as they were trying to take them. Just like hit hard. 
as they're trying to take the shot up in the lane. And again, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but it feels like Duke is getting the short end of these calls again and again and again. I think it may be a little bit of our style. We are not as physical as a lot of these other teams in the ACC. Our big men are a little more skilled, perhaps. And I think that as a result, they don't, you know, they don't do as much whacking as they get whacked. <laughs> and so that may be why it feels like Duke isn't getting the advantage of the calls the, the way they should. But uh, look, th this all goes to, we talked, Donald, Florida State's one of the worst teams in the country at fouling players, at putting guys on the free throw line. Duke took 20 free throws in this contest. That's, that's okay. It's not a very big number, though, especially against a Florida State team that usually puts guys in the line a ton of the time. We mentioned that usually a typical Florida State game, they're the they're they're gonna you're gonna shoot about four free throws for every ten field goals you attempt. Like, I'm uh, sorry. Out of every ten, every ten shots you attempt, about four of them are gonna be free throws. Didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. That that makes more sense. In any event, in this game, Duke ends up taking 56 shots from the field. Only 20 of them are free throws. And usually Florida State would be, you'd be up closer to 30 or so shots at least because Florida State is a team that typically fouls a lot. And Duke just didn't get to the free throw line nearly as much as I thought they would. So, Jason, I think if the one thing that I am thinking about with the uh, with the physicality, right? If we played as physical as some teams in the ACC do, as some teams in around the country do, we would be on Sports Center every day because people would be crying about how Duke gets all the calls because we're so we we throw people to the ground. We if we played like the Bad Boys Pistons, right? We would be excommunicated from the NCAA for how we play. But it means everyone else knows that, and everyone else uses that to their advantage against us. But Jason, in spite of all that. I want to end with a little bit of a positive note. And it comes from our, our good friend, the K-man, David Kerman. Now, he said before the season, if you ask yourself where are Duke's historic you know, tough spots that they have to play on the road, not necessarily in any order, it's Blacksburg, Tallahassee, and Raleigh, right? We talked about that before the season, that those three games were going to be super difficult to go into and get a win. We've always had difficulty playing there. Blacksburg even coming up, being the back end of the Saturday-Monday double. Well, Jason, we've won at Blacksburg. We've won at Tallahassee. Raleigh's the only one left. So that's not – any road win is a big win, but especially when you go into a place that you know you play difficult and, and they play you tough and the crowd is always on you and you walk out of there with victories, not too bad, my friend, not too bad. All right, with that, I think, Donald, you got anything else in the bad that you want to want to talk about? Or are we good? No, to... should we talk about Jared McCain again, player of the week? <laughs> uh, yes, Jared McCain is my player of the week. I'm sure he is your player of the week as well. Did, did you have stats on him that you wanted to mention or anything like that? 52 points, 11 threes, 14 rebounds, five assists, four steals this week. And Jason, the most important, the and most a incredible and a stat to me. Tree. <laughs> yeah, no, the most important stat or most incredible stat, I think. He only missed three minutes and two seconds of gameplay all week. Yeah, yeah. He played almost 40 minutes yesterday. He played almost 38 against Wake Forest. Boy, that's fun. Because you'd be crazy to take him out of the game. That's why. <laughs> right. <laughs> the way he's playing? Nope. All right, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, we're going to welcome in a special guest as we talk about the NCAA's first crack at what the seeds will look like in the NCAA tournament. March Madness in February. That's coming up. 
This episode of the Duke Basketball Roundup is sponsored by BetterHelp. Springtime is the season that's supposed to feel like a new beginning. We have better weather, and it feels like everyone gains a boost of energy. However, for many, leaving winter behind doesn't always mean that their mood lightens up with the extra sunlight. We all carry around stress, and that stress can build as more events get added to your calendar. That's certainly true, Donald. And with the amount of social gatherings increasing with the improving weather and more daylight, there's more pressure to be on when you're interacting with family, friends, coworkers, even strangers, even when stress has you a little bit down. And for some, getting advice from a therapist can help you tackle some of that stress without affecting you or the people you care about. That's what BetterHelp is all about. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be therapy that's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a professional, licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime you want. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and find your social sweet spot. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Duke Roundup today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Duke Roundup. All right, Donald and I are back from the break, and look, we're going to talk about the NCAA releasing its uh, first shot, its February version of the NCAA seeds, the top uh, top 16 teams, the, all the top four seeds. And to help us out with that, we want to bring in a great friend of the podcast, Scott Rich. Uh, Scott is, man, he is a dude who, who tracks this stuff extensively. If you are not someone who follows the Duke basketball report bulletin boards, then you're missing something because Scott is giving analysis of potential seeds and the NCAA net and all that other kind of stuff all the time. Scott, thanks a lot for uh, checking in with us on Sunday morning. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, so I'll go ahead and, and give the list, not the entire thing, but some of the teams worth noting. And then y- you tell me what your initial observations are from this list. They, they name, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll give you the, the one seeds in order, Purdue, UConn, Houston, and Arizona where they're one seeds. I, I don't see anything controversial with any of those selections. Uh, they have UNC at number five in the seed order, the top number two seed, which may be a tad high for them. They have Duke at number 12, the last of the three seeds. I, I guess that's probably fine. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it all rounds out uh, Auburn, San Diego State in there at number 14. I guess that's the one that opened my eyes a little tiny bit. And then we get all the way down to Illinois and Wisconsin. Um, Scott, give me your take. What do you think about the job the NCAA did? Anything that you're learning about what they're looking for or things like that from from this initial seed list? So I think one of the things that was the highlight here that you mentioned that I'm, you know, I I actually called this in my article on DBR I was pretty proud of was San Diego State as one of the, you know, better four seeds. Uh, This is something that, you know, the casual college basketball fan doesn't know how good the Mountain West is this year. It really is, they will in all likelihood have the third most teams in the tournament 
following the Big 12 and the SEC. Unless Does some the Mountain West teams. incorporate, the, do they inherit the West Coast bias once the Pac-12 dissolves? Or is, how does that work? Who, who's in the will? That's a very good question. I, I think there, there were rumors that the Pac-12 was going to just try to add their branding to Mountain West or something yeah. like that. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if sometime in the next half a decade, the Mountain West somehow morphs into a new Pac-12 or something like that. Um, but they, they play some really good basketball there. And San Diego State is a team that's the top of the conference where it was in the Final Four last year, so it has a little bit of that you know name recognition. And I, it, it made sense for the committee to say, if this is one of the top conferences in the league and make, they should have, you know, the best team should be a top four seed. This was something that most of the bracketologists, if you look at, you know, the consensus on bracket matrix had San Diego state as a five seed, they end up as a high four seed. It wouldn't surprise me if whomever comes out of the mountain West as the best team ends up in that top four consideration especially since it's really easy for the committee to then just put them out in the West bracket as the West number four seed. The other thing that was, you know, the main story, which is obviously relevant to us is UNC. Most people had UNC as a two seed, but a low two seed, especially after their recent struggles. The fact that they were the number five overall seed really opened some eyes. And I think, you know, Duke fans never want to root for the Tar Heels, but this ends up being really good for Duke. Essentially, what this says is that the committee views the ACC better than the average fan, better than the bracketologists, better than some of the media narratives about the ACC being down. And not only that, but one of the things, if you actually watch the overproduced half-hour show that they put on CBS to fill some time, the committee chair mentioned that one of the teams that was in the running for the last number four seed, the number 16 overall, was Clemson. Now, obviously, that changed after they, you know, probably yeah. changed after they lost another close one last night. But the, the idea that, that the ACC was very close to having three top four seeds is something that probably would have seemed outlandish back in December or January. So that means is... The ACC is not this down the doldrums conference in the eyes of the NCAA selection committee, which is, again, the only people that matters. Who cares what Joe Lenardi puts on his weekly update? It doesn't matter. All that matters is what the selection committee says. And so the reason this is good news for Duke is if you dig in and you look at UNC's resume compared to Duke's, there aren't any huge huge differences both duke and unc have five court q1 wins they're both you know in the same range of the net the net ranking as a raw number doesn't matter as much as okay is there a huge outlier uh duke's now two and two in q2 unc six and one that's a little bit of a differentiator but then you go look at the non-conference resume Duke arguably has a better non-conference resume in the fact that there are two Duke wins against top 20 net teams on neutral sites. UNC's best non-conference win is Tennessee in a vacuum. That looks great, but that was a home game. 
And we all know the selection committee values or, or devalues home wins and values neutral site and road wins a little bit more. So it is well within the the realm of possibility that if Duke goes on and claims the title as the best ACC team, that they're going to end up being a number two seed in the tournament, which is something that, again, a few weeks ago, I think many people thought might have been a pipe dream. That is something that is going to be a challenge. Duke has to take care of business, but that is now very much within its grasp. I, Scott, I think the one thing also that I'm looking at here, there's a couple of things. First off, of course, they consider a bunch of different things in evaluating who these top 16 teams are. They evaluate the eye test. They evaluate the records, you know, again, quad one versus quad four, all those things. They also look at some of the algorithms, some of the algorithms that all of us you know, do here on this show, right? You know, Ken Palm and the net. Those are two of the, the algorithms that are taken under consideration. And when you look at some of these seeds, I mean, there's some that stand out to you. Like, of course, I think Purdue was the number one overall seed if the tournament began today. But if you look at Ken Palm and the net, number one, number one, Houston, both poles. Like those, so you, you have teams that are super strong. You have teams that are kind of, hey, maybe they shouldn't be here. Wisconsin, right? It's 22nd in the net, 19 in Ken Palm. San Diego State, uh, Jason mentioned, 18 in both Ken Palm and the net. You have some teams that are a little bit outliers. But what's clear is this. The one thing I always look at when you see these top 16 is how many of them actually end up in the top 16. And usually every year when they release this, since they've done this, I think it's done this for, what, seven years now? Yeah. Every year, I think the lowest – that they've had is like 11 out of 16. Correct. And that was, I think that was that year that like everyone basically lost their conference tournament and they had to figure out who was going to be the number one seed because like the top like six teams lost in their conference tournament. So you have this situation here where you're looking at this and yeah, maybe a, a seed line or two might change, but for all intents and purposes, you're looking at what the committee feels at the top 16 teams and it, going to take a lot for them to say oh the this team is no longer a portion a part of that like of course one of these teams could go on a run one of these teams could go in a you know absolute abysmal streak over the next few weeks but for all intents and purposes you're looking at what they're thinking about what they're considering with the ncaa tournament feel the 68 and how teams and i think for the teams that are not on this list right not necessarily the fives and sixes but really we're talking about the 11 seeds, the, the the guys on the bubble, the, the teams that are in these mid-major conferences that may only get one team in and their ideas to hopefully make it too. And they have to really, over the next couple of weeks, focus on those quad one opportunities and even those quad two opportunities. Because again, there's only 30, there's only, you know, really a few opportunities for all of these teams to get quad one wins. So focus on those top two. But I think for, in the case of the ACC, the fact is, as you mentioned, the committee is not looking at this like a slouch conference, which I think is great for the ACC. I don't think that means we're going to get eight teams in, but it does mean for those Wake Forests and the Clemsons, the teams, even Miami, if they can turn it around, those teams that are considered firmly on the bubble or trying to get to the bubble, this is an opportunity. The door is open for them to say, hey, we finished strong in the ACC. We got in the you know top five of the conference and a conference that you think is very strong, strong enough to rank two teams in the top 16 of the tournament. 
give us a chance. We're not going to let you down. We're going to make it where this is an exciting tournament for you. And we're going to rattle up and we have the opportunity to beat anybody in front of us. So that's really the, the focus here. Uh, I think the seating itself, will, again, there'll be some shifts one way or the other. But for the most part, this is telling the ACC, step up. You guys got an opportunity here. Take advantage of it. I, I do want to chime in real quick. You mentioned Houston, and I think Houston is an interesting case because, like you said, the, the metrics all say Houston is perhaps the best team in the country. Compared to the num- the other top seeds, Houston actually had one of the weakest non-conference schedules. They have a handful of Q1 wins, but they're all sort of at the bottom of Q1. Some of them are at risk of falling out. When you compare them to the Purdue's and the Connecticut's and the Arizona's, they don't have that top line marquee victory. So I I do I give the committee credit for, you know, with Houston and then also a little bit with uh I think I think it was Auburn with listing them lower than some Auburn. people expected. Mm-hmm. Those were two teams that passed the eye test, looked good in the metrics, but didn't have strong non-conference, at least relative to other teams. And the committee actually stuck to their guns and reflected that in the rankings. And because of that, I think a low-key storyline going down the stretch is there's there's big separation between the top four teams and the rest. But even though Houston is ranked above Arizona right now, I think they're the more vulnerable of the one seeds to fall off the line. If they go into a slide in the Big 12, which can happen in the Big 12, and you're comparing them to a Tennessee or a North Carolina, or even a Kansas, if Kansas ends up claiming the Big 12, then you're looking at that non-conference resume, and Houston is going to lose out. So that could be something where, in a, in a year where I think there, there really is a top four that separated itself from the pack, if there is one that's vulnerable... It may be Houston, even though they're the number three as opposed to the number four. Yeah, well, and 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 Houston still they've got a game at Baylor. They've got a, they're hosting Kansas. I mean, as you say, the Big Twelve is an absolute gauntlet. Every road game in the Big Twelve is a is a potential. They're playing at Oklahoma, uh, they could absolutely lose any or all. They've got Iowa State at home. Iowa State is a top ten team or really close to it. Um, yeah, it, 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 it could be. I agree with you. I think Houston is a team that is in real danger, potentially, because there are so many pitfalls ahead of them. Hey, Scott, I wanted to ask you, and you're not necessarily prepared for this, but so for Duke to get up to the, the number two line, how many more losses do you think this team can take? Like, could I think if Duke only loses one more game the rest of the way and wins the ACC tournament, I'm including the AC tournament in this. I think Duke's going to find itself on the two line. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I, I, I'd be interested in hearing from you. You know, how many could could they lose? Could they lose two? You know, let's say. I don't. I, I'm not even sure which two games they could lose and still get there. It'd be tough because probably one of those losses is UNC. And if we lose to UNC again, it becomes very hard. I think to rank Duke ahead of Carolina. I, I agree. I think that there are two scenarios to consider there, which is, do we beat UNC or do we lose to UNC? I think if we take care of business and we beat UNC, I think one loss comfortably gets us on the two line, again, depending a little bit who it is, depending on if the ACC helps us out and there's, you know, some of these teams on the border of Q1, Q2 end up elevating themselves. I think that two losses 
doesn't put us out of the running, especially if that second loss is, you know, in the ACC title game, for instance. Uh, but if the loss is to UNC, then there's no room for error. Duke has to win every other game. Because again, that is the loan opportunity for a really, really marquee win in conference that the teams from the Big East have, you know, Connecticut now has that on their line, you know, blowing out Marquette. Marquette does get another chance at UConn at home. Uh, Kansas and Houston have obviously played each other, get that chance at those marquee wins. Duke only has one more, maybe two more shots than that. At the yeah, East, I, I would, I would argue the game at Wake is a, is an opportunity for a pretty big, I mean, Wake is, uh, Wake's a pretty darn good team. Oh, I agree. Well, I think that that is one that to the, to the ACC fan, that looks like a big win, but to the selection committee, when yeah, Wake right. is still Wake is still a net forty to fifty team, that's not necessarily the quality of that win. If we were to get it, may not necessarily be reflected in the metrics that the selection committee is going to use. That's just the you know the unfortunate reality of how Wake's slow start you know ends up weighing them down. Well, at least for Duke, right? There's a couple of things. One, when you look at the schedule for the rest of the regular season, we have at least two quad one opportunities at Wake Forest and then home against UNC. Then you also have borderline ones where you're looking at at Miami, borderline quad one, quad two, at NC State, borderline quad one, quad two. And then you have Louisville, right? But then you also have the ACC tournament. If we finish number two, in the conference, number one in the conference, it's almost assured that we're going to see quad one games in those three games that we need to win to win the NCAA tournament. And of course, Jason, that could of course that that could mean beating UNC at home. It could also mean potentially meeting them again in a in a proverbial final. So you have those opportunities in front. So if, if, again, if Duke wins the games late in front of them, that's one thing. But I also think the committee what they've also been taking into account. Scott, when you were on the show a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that the the historic low percentage of teams winning on the road, ranked teams winning on the road against unranked opponents, much less ranked yeah. opponents, is is historic. The fact is, we have three games left on the road. Again, one of them is a quad one opportunity. If we're able to win those, and the other two are the borderline quad quad two quad ones, we win those. And those teams somehow elevate themselves to quad one status. You look, you get back in that committee and go, yo, Duke finished out. They won three games on the road. Those three games were quad one wins on the road. It doesn't matter who those teams are. They will rate those. And that's clear in this, in this rankings here, they're going to rate those, those road wins because there are so few in college basketball this year. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll finish my thoughts here with one last thing, which is it's really easy to project Duke's road out not thinking about the fact that other teams are going to lose. And that is the reality. I think yeah. in in all likelihood, Tennessee's got a, a couple more losses on their schedule. The SEC is better than the ACC. Teams like Kansas and Houston and Iowa State and Baylor from the Big 12 probably have a couple more losses. They, they play each other. Their... Someone's got to lose. Right? Exactly. By, by, by definition, they're going to have some losses, right? So – it, it will be an interesting question if Duke has similar Q1 records to some of those teams, but with fewer losses. Does the committee say, okay, this team won more games, let's reward that? 
or does the committee view that relative to the level of the conference? And that is one thing that they have been somewhat inconsistent. And I've talked a lot on DBR about how inconsistent the committee is about valuing losses versus wins. They look really hard at how good your wins are. There's a little bit less emphasis on how good or bad your losses were, which is one reason why I don't think we need to worry too, too much about the Georgia Tech loss or the Arkansas loss. You know, unless it's really splitting hairs, the NCAA has shown that that's not a, the first or second differentiator that get, they go to. So again, if Duke is up two losses in the loss column on some of these other teams, that's going to be an interesting question that really is we don't know how the selection committee is going to go when you compare an ACC six-loss team versus a Big 12 eight- or nine-loss team. I like it. Hey, before we go, one last quick thing. Donald, I know you wanted to mention a, uh, a an, an old longtime Dukey who may be better known for stuff he did away from Duke uh, has left us, and I, want, I know you wanted to mention something very quickly about that. Yeah, uh, just yesterday we heard of the passing of Lefty Drizel at the age of 92. He's a legendary coach uh, in my one of the great coaches in college basketball history, over 760 wins. I believe the only coach in the history of the NCAA to win 100 games at four schools. You mentioned I actually, Jason. Donald, I actually found out there's, uh, I think Cliff Ellis is there, there's one other. Cliff Ellis. Cliff Ellis, yeah. But, okay, but so an unbelievable thing to do that at 40. Unbelievable stats to, to have that kind of success at so many different places. Again, taking four teams of the NCAA tournament. He won the, NCAA, the NIT in 1972. He's won the ACC tournament before, the SOCON championships several times. Stops at Davidson, Maryland, James Madison, and Georgia State in his coaching career. But of course, he played at Duke from 1951 to 1954. He's one of the all time greats, one of the all time legends not just on the court, but also in life. If you've ever shook hands with Lefty Giselle, you know that he's just a, he was just a very thoughtful young man. And I know, Jason, we're coming up on episode 600, so I'll be you know, interested to learn more about Lefty as a person uh, if, you know, when we get uh, Kenny on, once we get to 600 in just a, a week or so. But I, I wanted to make that note because, one, it, when a legend passes, it's, it's far too soon. But at 92, this man left a legacy behind him. So... Rest in peace, Lefty Giselle, always going to be a member of the Duke family and, and and so many other families. There's a lot of people across college basketball who are sad today because he's no longer with us. And and rest in peace to him and condolences to, to the family. Yeah, like Donald said, in just a, a few days, uh, about a week or so, we're going to be having episode number 600 where Kenny Denard will join us. Uh, the dog has joined us in episode 100, 200, 300, 400, 500. As we approach 600, you know he's coming back on. And Kenny, of course, had had a relationship with Lefty. He knew Lefty pretty darn well. And so Kenny's going to be on and, and talk about that a little bit. Until then, we're going to wrap things up here on the latest edition of the DBR, the Duke Basketball Roundup. That's Donald. Scott Rich, thanks. Scott, appreciate it, man. You're the expert. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you, you gave us good content. I love it. I'm That's my job, right? There you go. Exactly. All right. Time for the Duke band to play us out and take us home.